This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a lot we just don't know about how to prevent gun violence. That's because of a dearth of research related to guns in America. The head of Colorado's public health department says, isn't the need for more research and more money to do it a cause everyone can get behind? Dr. Larry Wolk joins us, along with Dr. Emmy Betts. She got a rare federal grant to study guns and suicide prevention in Colorado. And welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Dr. Betts, can you put into context just how unusual the low amount of federal funding is for gun research when you compare it to other causes of death in the United States? So there was an interesting analysis a few years ago where they looked at mortality of leading causes of death and federal funding for those uh, into those causes. And overall, firearms got about one and a half percent of what would have been expected. So if you compare it to um, other leading causes of death, it's really not even in the same ballpark. The idea there that given the number of deaths in the United States by guns, you'd expect much more funding. Correct. uh, Commensurately. Uh, I have to imagine that there are too many unanswered questions to count. But Dr. Wolk, could you give us an idea of some of the questions you have that you think more gun research funding could answer? Sure. I mean, you know, I think people make presumptions about um, gun violence is due to availability or accessibility. Is it as a result of unmet mental health uh, needs or inadequate mental health screening? Uh, Is it as a result of bullying or marginalization of people who then um, feel that, um, you know, they they need to participate in some um, violent um, act uh, with a gun uh, as a result? And uh, a lot of people have opinions, and a lot of people uh, are making those statements, um, I think, from an uninformed standpoint, because uh, we just don't have the research to back uh, any of those. Um, uh, So at this point, they remain just questions or or theories. Yeah, what you did there is you ran through a lot of the debates we hear after mass shootings in particular. What you're saying is there are any number of politicians who float those ideas about why there are mass shootings, why there's gun violence, but you're saying there's just not the research to back any of that up, those assertions up. Right. And uh, I think people on both sides, uh, although more so uh, on the uh, sort of pro-gun side, uh, you know, there's concerns that that research won't be objective, that we won't ask the questions in an objective way um, so that we can get answers uh, to that, uh, that, um, you know, these are just uh, biased ways uh, to get at controlling or or limiting um, ownership or, or the use of guns. And to support what you're saying there, I'll say the Rand Corporation reviewed the research and says there's no clear evidence for how policies affect mass shootings, officer-involved shootings, or defensive gun use. This includes things like the effects of arming teachers, for instance. There's just uh, no evidence. What do you make, Dr. Wolk, of those concerns that research would necessarily be biased, perhaps against gun rights? Well, I think it challenges the status quo, and anything that challenges the status quo has the potential to be biased. And so um, certainly if a change were to occur, that change would most likely uh, be uh, some sort of uh, restriction or or prohibition, although at the same time, maybe the research um, supports um, 
the notion that uh, ownership or accessibility of, of weapons uh, or guns uh, doesn't have a role uh, in um, gun-related violence. That so, is, the, the answer might come back that any number of guns could be in people's hands, and that has absolutely no bearing on on the rate of mass shootings. You're saying that's a that's a, a possibility. Uh, it is. I mean, and you think of from a public health standpoint, some of these other issues that we deal with that um, people presume uh, is a result of having increased access to birth control, let's say, you're going to see an increase in sexual activity and that's not the case. Uh, legalization of marijuana, you're going to see an increase in use amongst adults or youth here in Colorado, and that's not the case. So maybe, you know, uh, that, that would be the same case made uh, for why we should be allowed to study uh, guns and study uh, why gun violence occurs. And maybe the answer, similar to these other examples I gave, is that accessibility and availability are not in of themselves reasons why gun-related violence occurs. We'll get into the background of why there's this dearth of federal money for research in just a bit. But I want to be very clear, this isn't just about mass shootings. Dr. Betts, you study suicides. Uh, Briefly, what are you investigating right now? So our team is looking at how we can better help, we as healthcare providers can better help um, those at risk of suicide and their families make decisions about how to make the environment safer during times of risk. The environment. Their, You're right, their home or... environment, exactly. Mm-hmm. So just like having a designated driver, if somebody's not safe to drive, you don't call the police to take away their uh, car keys. You know, in the same way, this is how can we um, help people during a, a time of suicide risk make decisions about locking up guns or temporarily moving them out of the home. Because we know that in those periods um, of risk and crisis, access to a firearm can increase the risk of death. That is that gun storage, gun accessibility might have some bearing on whether someone is able to follow through with suicide. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so what our work is looking at, you know, we've worked with um, a range of stakeholders, so firearm owners, people, uh, representatives from firearm groups, trying to develop an educational tool that will hopefully help patients and families make these difficult decisions. It's so interesting. I mean, it's so straightforward, gun storage, and yet that might have a huge effect. That's what you're trying to establish. I understand that you're the rare public health researcher who got federal money to do this? How is that possible then? Right. So um, so since um, shortly after Sandy Hook, when President Obama issued a directive about funding for, for firearm violence research, um, NIH has been funding work in firearms. It's generally very difficult to get NIH money really for anything um, because it's very competitive. Um, but our funding came from the National Institute of Mental Health, which is under the umbrella of NIH. And they've recognized that firearm suicide is a big problem and that we can't reduce suicide rates without addressing firearm access and, and firearm safety. And so um, that's how we received funding through a competitive process. Okay. So do you think that's uh, just about the issue of suicide in particular? In other words, if you were studying mass shootings, do you think it might have been a different outcome? I think potentially. I think at NIH, it's difficult. It has to be linked to a particular health condition. Health so, condition. so in that sense, it, it, it fits clearly within the realm of suicide prevention. I also think firearm suicide prevention is a little less controversial uh, because nobody wants to lose a family member. So here's a little bit of the context here. There's something called the Dickey Amendment. It's the de facto ban on federal funding for gun research. It's named after Jay Dickey, who was a congressman from Arkansas. 
And in the late 90s, he wrote a law that was meant to prevent advocacy with federal money. And he told NPR a while back that he regrets that it's been used to stop nearly all gun violence research. All this time that we have had, we would have found a solution, in my opinion. And I think it's a shame that we haven't. They need to reactivate that fund and be specific as to what that money is to be used for. Dr. Wolk, is the tide moving at all here to get more federal money for gun research, do you think? Well, it's it's uh, it's been an ebb and flow tide, and I think uh, we're starting to see some advocacy again at the federal level to see if um, you know this amendment can be repealed so that the CDC, who really is the primary funding uh, organization at the federal level for us here at the state level. Um, can in fact then make this a priority area. If, if you look at the research that we're able to fund and the programs that we're able to fund when it comes to tobacco or to cancer prevention or to obesity or even suicide, uh, it's two-thirds of that funding really comes from the federal government here in the state of Colorado through uh, our Department of Public Health and Environment. And so without that conduit, without that pool of federal funds that we can tap into, to, uh, it really then falls on, you know, um, the state, uh, whether it's through general fund, which we have no funding uh, to date, um, we haven't received any funding to date uh, to do this, or even the private foundation community uh, who has shown some interest, but again, not, uh, not really funded anything direct in this area. What you're saying is that without the federal government, that's, that's a lot of money uh, that, that is not on the table. They're a significant player in health research. I'll say the new head of health and human services, which oversees the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said recently that he's open to expanding federal gun violence research. He was pressed by a congresswoman from Florida, Kathy Castor. Will you be proactive on the research initiative? We, we certainly will. Our Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, we're in the science business and the evidence-generating business. And, and so I will, I will have our agency certainly be working in this field as they do across the whole broad, the broad spectrum. And we're going to hold you to it. And Mr. And Mr. Chair, Chairman Burgess? I'll, I'll say the Denver Post tried to survey Colorado's Republican congressman and didn't find any who supported more federal funding for gun research. I'll note that Democrat Diana DeGette has repeatedly introduced legislation to try to fund this kind of CDC research. Uh, but Dr. Wolke, you, you mentioned briefly the possibility of like private funding on this. Could, would you just say briefly more about that? Well, we have uh, some uh, foundations, some private foundations uh, that have been set up here in the state, uh, you know, uh, Caring for Colorado, the Colorado Health Foundation, uh, Rose Community Foundation, uh, who are concerned about health and, and funding um, health initiatives. And so certainly it's an opportunity uh, for us to work with uh, any or all of them and others uh, if we lack uh, the, the federal funding source uh, to, you know, say this is important to us here in Colorado. Uh, let's do something together here at the state level. Just like it, it wouldn't, uh, you know, be unheard of uh, to see, see maybe some legislation that would allow for state general fund if our own state legislators uh, found that this was a compelling um, reason to go ahead and fund research. I'll say that some states have started to designate more money for this. California, possibly New Jersey. 
Dr. Betts, even if there was a flood of new money for gun research, be it from the federal government or elsewhere, I imagine there'd be a lag in reaping the benefits. I mean, are there enough scientists, researchers doing this kind of work, given that there's been so little federal money now for decades? So I think if there was a flood of money tomorrow, there are certainly a lot of researchers who would step up to the plate to try to do the work. At the same time, I think we need to recognize that this the, this de facto ban on funding has really had a chilling effect on the on the um, on the development of new investigators in firearm violence research. I personally have had people tell me, you know, you might want to think about going in a different different direction with your career because are you sure you're going to be able to be funded and huh. and so forth. And so I think. Um, there are enough of us that we'd be happy to, to step up, and I think that shouldn't keep us from trying to fund this work. But we really do need to have sustained funding to grow um, the body of people and institutions who can do this. I ask this of Dr. Wolk. I'll ask this of you. What burning question do you have about gun violence that you'd like to answer in the United States? Oh, it, it, that's both hard and easy because there are so many. <laughs> so I think, I, I think that um, – you know, a better understanding of the overall um, uh, patterns of gun violence, who's affected and how, understanding in um, different subgroups um, what those risks are. Um, different subgroups. I, yeah, subgroups of populations, both geographically, urban, rural differences, mm. um, by uh, racial, ethnic differences and so forth. And then also understanding the, the differential patterns between suicide and homicide and mass shootings. I also think, echoing what, what he was saying earlier, I think – we all need to be ready to accept what the science tells us. And so if we, you know, we may learn that in some situations having a firearm is protective um, of, against violence in your home and so forth. And and I think as scientists, we need to go into this with an open mind uh, and then be ready to move on what we find. Dr. Wilk, is it frustrating to watch legislatures, you know, here in Colorado, but across the country, legislate on the issue without a lot of research to back that up? Does that frustrate you? Um, it does, but it, it depends on the intent. You know, I think uh, outside of this discussion is, again, whether or not uh, the right to bear arms includes uh, having these um, automatic, uh, you know, high volume um, uh, firearms um, in any situation or circumstance. There's still a sort of risk mitigation factor that needs to be considered. Uh, and we do this all the time. You know, we limit uh, the percentage, uh, the proof percentage of alcohol. Uh, we, we limit uh, the amount of nicotine or even the amount of THC in legalized marijuana products. And so using that same sort of risk mitigation principle, that, that part's not frustrating to me because I think regardless, we have to uh, protect you know, society and, and, and our kids uh, by, by looking at risk mitigation almost separately from this issue as it relates to gun violence. So, uh, as I said before, you know, uh, then you get into the question about why this occurs uh, aside from the risk mitigation piece. And, and those are the questions that, uh, you know, we need answered. Dr. Larry Walk heads the state public health department and Dr. Emmy Betts manages the state's violence and injury prevention program and teaches emergency medicine at CU. We're going to hear now from State Representative Faith Winter, who led the successful fight to expel a colleague accused of sexual harassment. Winter was the first of five women to file formal complaints against Steve Lebsock. Her allegations stemmed from a party they both attended at the end of the 2016 session. 
On Friday, in a once-in-a-century vote, Democrats and Republicans ousted Lebsack. At her Westminster home on Sunday, Winter, who's a Democrat, told me what she hopes the effects will be at the Capitol. The effect is the women in the building are going to be believed. They felt that their voices were heard and valued, and I think it's going to change the culture there. When you say the women, I notice you didn't say the female lawmakers. I imagine that you see this as a culture that affects more than just the elected folks under the dome. Absolutely. In fact, I think it impacts our aides, our interns, and the lobbyists even more than it impacts the lawmakers because they're the most vulnerable. By coming forward, they risk their careers, they risk their clients, they risk their income, and now they have a safer place to work too. Indeed, when you spoke during the floor debate in the House Friday, you said today is the day to shine a light on the culture that we have put up with for too long. Enough is enough. But how do you think the legislature will be most resistant to change? I think the biggest obstacle is the Senate. And if they're going to hold people accountable for the complaints in that chamber. Now that could sound like a partisan volley. That's a chamber that's under Republican control. This was not a partisan issue. We saw Republicans join us on Friday and stand up and say enough is enough. The last thing I thought about coming forward was politics. So I think collectively, all 100 of us need to decide what type of culture we're creating for democracy. There was talk before the vote that it would be hard to get the eight Republicans you needed to expel Mr. Lebsack. The margin eventually was much larger. What do you think turned the tide? Friday was one of those rare days where stories changed hearts and minds. We walked in, we didn't have the votes, and we ended up having 52. And it's because we respected each other, we listened to each other, and the stories changed minds. We spoke with one representative who said the reason he voted to expel Lebsack is for the retaliation that he subjected his victims to. So not necessarily for the original transgressions, but for the fact that there was a verifiable paper trail, if you will, of sort of harassment after the fact. What do you say to that? That was a big part of the issue, waking up every day from the moment I came forward, wondering what was going to happen next, when I was going to be attacked next, and when I'd have to defend myself again. Say just a bit more about what form the retaliation took towards you in particular. Sure. He repeatedly called me a liar in the media. He wrote a manifesto that was meant to humiliate and embarrass the victims, and he created an awful YouTube video designed to humiliate and embarrass me. The cynic might ask about Lebsack's party affiliation change just before the vote. He became a Republican. And a cynic might ask, is the reason Republicans eventually supported his ouster that they knew that they would get control of the seat? Do you have any indication that your Republican colleagues had a whiff of that before they cast votes? I don't think they had any idea. And when Mr. Lebsack came in the chamber for the last time to speak. One last time, he dropped a document off on the minority leader's desk. And we are, were all surprised and wondering what it was. And it was the change of registration. Um, so I don't think anyone knew. Take me to the moments during and immediately after the vote. With 52 yes votes, nine no votes, and four excused, 
HR 1005 is passed. What was going through your head at the time, and, and how are you right now? It was a really surreal moment. I went into the chamber that morning thinking that we weren't going to have the votes. And so to see the board light up with 52, I was a little bit in shock. And now, how's the weekend been? Well, yesterday, I went and trained a bunch of women to run for office. And now I'm just ready to go to work and work on bills and debate policy and be in a building where I'm not um, scared anymore. I want to say that there are some, including the state Senate president, Kevin Grantham, who argue that people accused of sexual misconduct shouldn't be expelled from the legislature unless they've been tried and convicted in court. Do you feel Representative Lepsock got due process? Absolutely. If we are going to tell women that to come forward at the Capitol, you have to go through an independent investigation, and then it has to meet criminal standards for anything to be done, that is way too high of a standard. Is it possible that this process was too fast? That is one complaint I heard is that those who were voting didn't feel they had the time to vet the facts. Well, for the victims, it was 112 days living in fear of retaliation. So to the five of us that came forward, it felt really slow and arduous and long. And we had three days to read a 38-page document from an independent investigator. We read longer bills than that all the time. What have you learned about yourself in this process? I have learned that I was braver and more courageous than I thought I could be, and that I could make it through a marathon. That's how you see this, just as a, in a way, a, a run that felt unending. It's, I often said it's like climbing a 14er, and you see a false peak, and you have to keep going. At first, we thought the report would be back before session started, and then we thought it'd be back at the end of January, and then we heard it be back in mid-February. So there was a lot of false peaks where we thought there'd be a conclusion, um, but we finally made it there. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Representative Faith Winter. We're speaking with her on Sunday in her home. This is after a historic vote in the Colorado House to expel a fellow lawmaker of hers who had many counts against him of sexual harassment. We're sitting in your dining room, and your husband and your two kids, you have a son and a daughter, were kind enough to go upstairs to create a little bit of quiet. And I have to wonder what the effect of this has been on them. It was so hard. Um, Thursday night, as I was preparing, I was crying, and my daughter brought me a Kleenex and said, Mom, you're going to be okay. And I would come home and my son would say, did you have a good day or did the bully do something bad again? And I've always told them that we stand up to bullies. And if they get bullied at school, you go to your teacher for help. And I said, I went and asked for help and help came this week. And so we should always stand up to bullies. You ask the teacher for help. In this case, that's the leadership in your chamber. And do you feel that leadership could have done anything differently, faster, better? I think we have to evaluate our overall process. I don't think it's about leadership doing anything wrong, but on both sides of the aisle, we've talked about our policies around harassment and updating them. 
I think one of the biggest things we could do is have the point of contact for any harassment in the Capitol be a neutral, nonpartisan person instead of leadership. You have talked about victim shaming, that that's occurred. What does that look like? And I wonder if since the vote, you've had any backlash. I know you've gotten quite a bit of support. The Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault thanked you for, quote, standing up on behalf of all survivors. Victim blaming is where we are told because we were women and did something that we deserved what happened. So, for example, someone said, why wasn't she at home with her children that night? And the answer is, I'm a legislator who just finished session and passed a bunch of really good bills, and I deserve to celebrate just like everyone else did that night. Um, I've had emails and tweets about my appearance and how lucky I was that I was hit on. So I've had some backlash, but I've had an incredible outpouring of support. And I hope that people remember the support I got because I'm a very public person with a title, um, but what about the women that make the beds at the hotels or the waitresses? You want to become, in in some ways, an even more public figure. You're running for state senate, and you've said this isn't about politics, but how will you talk about this as a candidate? As a candidate, this is an example of the person I am, and now people know a lot about me. And what they know by watching me go through this process is that I have tenacity, that I'm strong, and I'm brave. And those are all things that we also need to use to pass legislation. But this wasn't political. I actually put my career at risk for this um, because I knew there would be retaliation. There was retaliation. And I am still worried that that gets used against me. There's going to be millions of dollars spent against me in this race. And now they have fodder from a YouTube video and a manifesto calling me a liar. Um, One of the media reports said, Lebsock said Winter lied. But there's still a headline out there that said Winter lied. You could easily put that into a mailer attacking me. But, But again, the last thing I was thinking of when I came forward was politics. I came forward because the behavior had not stopped. Women were continuing to be targeted. Women continued to be harassed. And there was a way I could put a stop to it, and I did. That is Representative Faith Winter, a Democrat from Westminster. She filed the initial complaint that led to Friday's ouster of Steve Lebsock from the legislature on a bipartisan vote. We spoke to Winter Sunday at her home. To increase diversity on campus, CU Boulder began appointing a visiting scholar in conservative thought. That was five years ago. It was widely seen as pioneering. This year, the school has chosen two visitors. One is W.B. Allen, professor emeritus of political philosophy at Michigan State University and former dean of James Madison College. I don't teach conservative thought, and so it doesn't mean anything to me, frankly. I am a conservative politically. Academically, I'm a radical, which is to say that I'm always disposed to challenge every consensus, every accepted principle, every prejudice. The other scholar starting in the fall will be Stephen B. Presser, legal historian at Northwestern. We wondered, what's it like for conservative professors on campuses that are often accused of being liberal? And are they able to make a difference? 
Joshua Dunn is author of Passing on the Right, Conservative Professors in the Progressive University. He's a self-identified conservative professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. For your book, you interviewed conservative professors around the country, dozens of them. Uh, What questions were you most eager to answer? So we were interested in their intellectual biography. Uh, We wanted to find out how they came to identify as conservatives, but then also we were interested in what their lives were like. We realized that uh, there's a lot of research on how liberal the academy is, but there was really nothing out there on what this political minority looks like or what their lives were like. So we're interested in do their experiences differ based on the discipline they're in or even subdiscipline or region of the country or type of institution that they're at. Uh, So those are some of the questions that we tried to get at. Maybe we should do a little groundwork here. Uh, There have been studies then of how liberal campuses are. Put that into context for us before we talk about the conservative relationship to those places. Certainly. So um, just to give you a a quick idea of it, in the social sciences, about 5% of social scientists uh, identify as conservative. But about 18 percent identify as Marxist. Uh, so not so not liberal, but Marxist. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how underrepresented conservatives are in the academy. Uh, when we were doing our research, we, we were looking at six, six disciplines. One of them was sociology. And there are about 6,000 sociologists in, in the United States. And we were able to find 12 who were willing to be interviewed by us. Uh, who are conservative. Yes. Self-identified conservatives or or libertarians. So you were very interested in the experience of these conservative professors, how that differed based on their disciplines, as you said, based on where they are in the country. What surprised you about their answers? So I was surprised at how many conservatives did feel like they had to hide their politics. Uh, Some of the questions were, were geared towards trying to identify whether or not they uh, were were concerned about political bias and discrimination. And so what we found was that out of the 153 professors we inter- interviewed, about one-third of them hid their politics from their colleagues, at least at some point in their career. And then if you exclude economics, and there's there are good reasons for excluding economics, it actually comes closest to uh, political balance in the academy, oh. uh, it was about half of the 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 faculty that we interviewed hid, hid their politics from their colleagues. Why is economics um, just a more diverse discipline? So uh, the part of it is methodological, uh, that uh, economics is the, the hardest of the social sciences, that it's, it's the most quantitative. Uh, but then it's also been shaped by neoclassical ec- economics to, to a substantial degree in the United States. Uh, and what one thing that's interesting is that economics, in a way, has become more conservative over, t- over time, at least since the 1970s. There's actually, in some ways, less radical economics out there today uh, than, the, than there was in, say, the 1960s and ni- 1970s. So if you look at economists, even liberal economists generally think that markets do a better job at allocating resources than central planning does. And the differences tend to be on when do markets fail and is there anything the government can do about it? And then maybe some questions about uh, social policy that, that might make them more liberal than some of their conservative colleagues. Have you had to hide your politics where you've worked? No, I, I've never felt like I had to. And that was one, that was part of the reason I, w- I was surprised at the large percentage uh, of 
faculty who had to hide their politics. My co-author and I have both uh, felt like we've been treated fairly and we enjoy the places that we work and we enjoy our colleagues. And so when we went and asked others, we did find that in some disciplines, it's just much more difficult to be a conservative than it is in political science or in economics. Like what? Give me some examples. So uh, sociology, I mentioned, it's just very difficult to actually find conservatives, and they do tend to be deeply hidden. Um, So one of the things that we did in order to actually identify conservative faculty in these disciplines was we used uh, what's known as a snowball sample. And that's a a method that you use for difficult to locate populations uh, like the homeless. So I think there is some irony in the fact that we had to use this method in, in locating conservatives. And so sometimes when we would email people and say, hey, um, one person has identified you as a conservative, uh, do you self-identify as conservative and you, would you be willing to be interviewed by us? They became very alarmed and scared. Um, and we'd have to try and talk them down a little bit because some of them actually told us we thought it was a red scare and a reverse. So th- that that gives you some uh, indication. In other disciplines, it's also somewhat difficult to find conservatives, history, uh, literature, uh, less so in uh, philosophy, but uh, uh, still smaller percentage than, say, in pol- than, than political science. So some, those are some of the disciplines where it's more difficult to find um, conservatives. On the other hand, are there assumptions that conservatives make about universities that turned out not to be true based on your research, which is asking conservatives on campuses what their experience is? Certainly. So we found that even though uh, conservatives did often face discrimination or obstacles uh, to professional advancement in the academy, uh, that sometimes those obstacles weren't as severe as conservatives like uh, uh, w- would often represent. Uh, so if you look, look at the kind of popular conservative press, there is a narrative about the academy that it's hopeless for, for conservatives and they can never find a job. And then when we talked to the conservative faculty, they said that that, uh, that narrative, that common conservative narrative overstates uh, things and that it's, it's perhaps not as bad as your average conservative on the street thinks um, and that there are, are ways of overcoming or coping with it. Is one of those ways to have universities intentionally appoint these conservative professors or is that tokenism? What, where do you come out on that? So yeah, my personal position is that uh, I'm not in favor of affirmative action, uh, if you think about it in the standard way of affirmative action uh, for, for conservatives. But the program at Boulder, I think, is on the whole a good one that's privately funded, so it's not taking away a position uh, from, from someone else. Uh, when we interviewed conservatives, that was one of the questions that we were interested in. What's your position on affirmative action for conservatives? And I can tell you that the overwhelming opinion was that they opposed it. Uh, and this is, a, I assume, a family-friendly show. I actually won't use some of the language that the conservative faculty used to describe the idea of affirmative action for conservatives. They're deeply, deeply opposed to it. And so I imagine that they see this then as a pipeline problem, that not enough conservatives are seeing academia as a, uh, a, a valid career for themselves. Do you think that's true? And what changes that? Yes, I think I think it is. There, there's a very good book that was written on this subject called Why Are Professors Liberal and Why Do Conservatives Care uh, by Neil Gross. And his argument, and I think it's a pretty compelling one, 
is that it's a primarily an issue of self-selection. That is that conservatives don't view the academy as uh, the kind of career that, that they would want to pursue. And you see this very early on in college when you, when you poll students. More liberal students tend to identify being a professor as uh, an occupation that, that they would want to pursue. Huh. And this actually goes back to the early 1900s. Uh, he, his argument is that the academy has been typed as a, as a left-wing uh, institution and therefore the professoriate is a left, left-wing career. Now, I would say that uh, discrimination feeds into that and there is evidence uh, of discrimination against conservatives. There's a sociologist at University of uh, uh, Texas at Dallas, George uh, Yancey, who wrote a book called Compromising Scholarship, where he actually has hard data on this and shows that there are, there's a substantial percentage of, of academics who, who would be willing to discriminate against someone if they know, for instance, they're, they're a conservative or a Republican uh, and uh, other markers of being a conservative. Uh, so I think those two things primarily explain it. But the most, most important one would be this pipeline problem in self-selection. What form would that discrimination take? So, uh, for instance, if they get some, uh, if they can identify your research is pointing towards uh, conservative policy outcomes or, or preferences, um, they will be less inclined to, uh, to hire you. Or if they just simply know uh, that you're a Republican. So, let's say in political science, if you used to work for a Republican senator, uh, and that's and that's on your your resume or your uh, your CV. That's the kind of thing that would be a marker for many academics to say, well, I just don't want this kind of person as my colleague. Is there something fundamentally dangerous about even asking or wondering about a professor's politics as a kind of litmus test? I mean, isn't it really about their scholarship, no matter what side of the political spectrum they're on, that's important here? Is this a a witch hunt mentality? Well, uh, ideally, you wouldn't want faculty to pay attention to that. But when you're talking about disciplines where politics often comes close to the core of the enterprise, in some ways, it's it's unavoidable that it, that it will come up. And so in some fields, uh, it's it's often easy to identify someone as being, for instance, more conservative than liberal. So if you're in sociology, for instance, and you do research on the family or on sociology of religion, where you come down on some of your research questions or even the questions that you ask might might tip people off that, that you're of one political persuasion or, or another. And so I obviously, I think you're correct that it would be much better if they – there was not this kind of inspection about uh, people's into people's politics, uh, but the fact is that that it does occur, and we actually do have um, pretty compelling evidence that it goes on on a regular basis. Uh, given the dearth of conservatives on campuses, I want to ask what the effect is on students. What does it mean if you've got classrooms and classrooms full of young minds being shaped? Uh, by liberals disproportionately or by Democrats disproportionately or Marxists disproportionately. Right. So the the first thing that I, I think I have to address is the one common conservative complaint, which is that students are being indoctrinated. And that is that they're going to campus and they're being taught by left wing faculty. And then this is turning them into good left wing soldiers. Uh, the evidence actually shows that that's not the case. Um Particularly if you look at courses where there does seem to be an ideological component, that is, they're trying to get students to uh, to come to certain conclusions about things. The evidence seems to be that, that, that those classes don't work and, in fact, that those classes might 
increase the attitudes that they're trying to get rid of in their charges. Uh, You see that also with, I think, corporate diversity uh, programs as well. And there's growing evidence on this that these kinds of heavy-handed efforts aren't aren't very effective. So I think that complaint by conservatives, there's not a lot of evidence for it. Um, you could call it a waste of resources uh, if the goal is actually to indoctrinate students. But it, it, uh, I think that peer groups uh, play a much more substantial role in shaping politics of students on campus than professors do. And of course, maybe, maybe fact as a as a as a professor, I I, I shouldn't say that, but I, I think that it's true. Um, so the ways that it does matter for students is that I think you can argue and point to evidence showing that students might be might not be exposed to the range of opinions that they need to be exposed to in uh, in order to be a more effective and capable citizen once they once they leave the university. Uh, so one good example of this, there's a professor at uh, New York University, John Haidt, uh-huh. who uh, he recounts in his book, The Righteous Mind. He's still very much on the left, but he, he talks about how he accidentally stumbled across a book, used, uh, book in a used bookstore on conservatism, an anthology of conservative thought. And he's like, well, that, what's conservative thought? I mean, there's no such thing as conservative thought. It's kind of irrationalism, emotionalism, uh, pure religious belief, uh, uh, anti-science. But then he started reading the book. Yeah, just, and just, just briefly. He, yeah, so he, he actually, he after about three minutes, he said, I was floored by the, he literally had to sit down on the floor uh, because he couldn't believe that there were actually these substantial arguments for conservatism. So that gives you an indication. Here's a man who's a tenured professor at an elite research university, and he had never come across these arguments uh, before. And so if that can happen to him, you can imagine that it happens to a lot of students. That is Joshua Dunn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. He co-wrote Passing on the Right, Conservative Professors in the Progressive University with John Shields. And we talked about how conservative professors view being outnumbered by liberal ones at colleges and universities. Tomorrow is a big day for skiers. Two passes go on sale for next season. One's been around for a while. The other is as fresh as powder. Maybe you've heard of it, the new Icon Pass. We wondered about the economics of season ski passes. Who wins? Does anybody lose? Jason Blevins of the Denver Post has covered the ski industry for years, and he's on the phone from Eagle. Hi, Jason. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing well. So with the arrival of this new pass... It's essentially a two-pass market in Colorado, the Epic Pass, which has been around for a decade. It's good at Vail, Beaver Creek, Keystone, among many others, and this new Icon Pass, including Aspen, Winter Park, Copper, Eldora. You have called this the Season Pass Brawl. Why? Well, we're coming into an era of two behemoths kind of fighting this out, and it, they are offering skiers these uh, two different passes and. The results of this past war will forever impact the ski resort industry, especially in Colorado. The result of this past war will forever uh, affect the market. How so? Well, you know, we're seeing a changing valuation of resorts as well as uh, the day ticket price. You know, these two entities will want us to buy season passes more than they want us to buy day tickets. Hmm. So they're asking us to buy are skiing ahead of time. You know, they're and starting tomorrow, they're going to say, buy next season skiing. Help us reduce our liability in bad snow years by giving us your money 
six months before the lifts start turning. Oh. Eight months before the list start turning. I see. With the idea that when you arrive at that uh, that date uh, and want to ski and there's no snow on the ground, they still have your money. Exactly. And we saw that very clearly this year with Vail Resorts. They've seen anywhere to a 10 to 12 percent uh, decline in visitation, um, declines in on-mountain dining, declines in... Uh, ski lesson revenue, but one thing that has not declined is their lift ticket revenue. That still goes up because of the number of season passes they have sold. So that sort of shows a bit of an immunity to, you know, the vagaries of snowfall and some of the risks that resort companies take when they're, you know, investing, say, $50 million in new chairlifts and they're betting on snow. Fascinating. And I imagine that they're probably earning interest on your money as well in, in some respect. What's in it for the skier? I mean, that, you know, on its face, that sounds like it's a pretty bum deal if it's a bad snow year for the skier. Sure. Um, well, you know, there's it, it's changed the way that we ski. Maybe when you grew up, at least when I did, and, you know, my parents would go buy us lift tickets. Boy, we skied every minute, bell to bell, right? Um, now, you know, you have a pass, you feel like you don't need to necessarily go as long as you had to. So you just, you know, ski occasionally, but, you know, ski a few hours a day. But what it's really doing is that we're seeing just a, a more flexibility in the way that we could ski. And we're not having to spend those really big, you know, $200 for a day ticket. And you feel like you've already paid for your skiing when the, when it comes around and it's, it's almost free, right? Yeah, I mean, it, if you ski a lot, it's obviously a pretty big discount from paying as if you were doing day passes each time. Correct. Yeah. Well, you know, if you get five days in, you've skied the equivalent of what you're paying for a day pass. Okay, so this is some of the equation. Until recently, Vail Resorts, which runs the Epic Pass, has been buying up ski resorts to add to their growing stable. Uh, but the company that created the Icon Pass, Altera Mountain Company, has really focused more on a partnership route as opposed to buying the resorts. I guess that's novel? It's it's new, and they definitely they have been buying resorts. They bought the IntraWest stable, so they own the uh, steamboat and um, you know number of skiers mammoth down in Southern California. So they have been buying some. They own the operating contract at Winter Park, for example. But they also have, any, I think, deals with you know close to more than a dozen different resorts, partnerships that allow them to share past privileges with these different resorts. So that's sort of new. Vail in the past has been wholly owned resorts. That's what the Epic Pass went to. And now with Altera, we're seeing more partnership deals, um, you know, deals for seven days at Jackson Hole or seven days at Snowbird Alta. And those are independently owned resorts. Mm, and some of these resorts are... Throughout North America, they may be all over the globe, in fact, these kinds of relationships. Okay, who's losing out because of season passes? Is it is it little guys or what? Well, you know, if you talk to some of the little guys, they definitely feel the impact. They have to play this game. You know, you talk to Aaron Brill down at Silverton Mountain, and he feels as though, you know, his day lift ticket has been devalued because, you know, he can't necessarily compete with somebody that's offering a season worth of skiing for $450. He needs to charge at least $100 or something to make his, his uh, you know, ski area operate for a day ticket. And it, it's it's a devaluation of that day ticket that uh, is impacting the little guys. But then 
you're seeing those little guys sign up to be partners with um, with the big guys in these new passes, so they're finding some benefit. It's sort of changing the landscape there on how these resorts are valued and how they compete. Huh. There's power in numbers in the ski industry. Yes, there is. No. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Oh, of course, right? That is Jason Blevins of the Denver Post talking about the epic and icon ski passes which go on sale tomorrow. And that's our program for today. You can follow the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. We are CPR News on Facebook. And you can find all the ways to get a hold of us at CPR.org slash connect. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.